0: Hey guys, welcome to episode one of Ponderings in Economics, a series dedicated to my thoughts on certain topics in economics. My name is Yang Cui and I will be your host for this episode. Today we will go over common resources, focusing especially on fishing, logging, and the atmosphere. Let us get started. So, first of all, let us look at what is a common resource. Last year in economics, we were introduced to a bunch of, I guess, different terms. First of all, there's rival and, um, versus non-rival, and excludable versus non-excludable. Rival means that multiple consumers cannot consume the same good. Think of it as a bag of chips. If I eat uh, a certain bag of chips, then my brother or you cannot eat that same bag of chips. If a good is non-rival, let's say their radio, me and you can both listen to, or like uh, use that good at the same time. For, exclu- uh, for it to be excludable, that means con- consumption cannot be detected or prevented. So let's say um, there's a field, there's an open field. That is a good example of a non-excludable good, meaning that I can't prevent you from walking your dog on that field. On the other hand, let's say private property, for example my house, I have a right to prevent others from entering my house, therefore my house is an excludable good. And um, for common goods or common resources, these um, things are both rival and non- non-excludable. Right? And that um, creates a big problem. First of all, if multiple people cannot have it at the same time, but you can't stop people from having it, then it's kind of incompatible. right? Open access is incompatible with scarcities. And this creates a big term known as the tragedy of the commons. Let's think the atmosphere from pollution, um, oceans, fishing, overfishing, timber, grazing lands, and fisheries. But before we get into all these specific examples, let's talk about how this idea originated. So there was a guy, or there might be still a guy, um, I, I'm not sure if he's alive or dead. His name is uh, Garrett James Hardin, and he is a human ecolo- ecologist and a philosopher focusing on human population and um, think um, Malthusian theory. Now, Hardin had this really, really, really famous 1968 paper in The Science called The Tragedy of the Commons. So, he detailed how innocent actions by people can inflict damage to the environment. And a lot of his ideas are summed up in his first law of human ecology. And I quote, We can never do merely one thing. Any intrusion into nature has numerous effects, Many of which are unpredictable. And this theory stated that the welfare state supported overbreeding. Again, think Malthusian catastrophe, where um, population expands faster than food, and this is all inevitable. Now, recently, Hardin's work has been criticized for being historically inaccurate because it doesn't account for demographic transitions, and it fails to distinguish between common property and open access resources. And uh, one article that addresses the tragedy of the commons and Hardin's, um, I guess, misconceptions, is um, Robert N. Stavins' The Problem of the Commons, Still Unsettled After 100 Years. Now, Steven's claims that the fundamental error in Hardin's article is that the problem, problem does not lie inherently in the commons, but rather in the, and I quote, excessive employment of capital and labor, small profits for participants, and an excessively depleted resource stock, end quote. So basically what Stevens is claiming is that, you know what, open access doesn't actually exhaust the stock, let's say fish stock, in um, fishing or like the timber stock in timber or like the atmospheric stock in the atmosphere but it only drives it below its efficient level because at a certain level the benefits of an additional harvest is less than the additional cost of um, this additional harvest let's think fishing okay so what Stevens is saying is that at a certain point of fishing um, you're overfishing right because At that point, when you um, fish another fish, the cost of doing so outweighs the benefits, right? The cost is staying out there for more time, Um, like there's resource costs, technology, etc., while you will be only gaining the profit um, gained from that one fish. Now, it's um, this, I guess, idea, this problem of the commons is really apparent in... First of all, um, the fishing industry, the logging industry, and um, the atmosphere. And today in this podcast, well, like in this episode, I will go through um, each thing, right? Both the fishing industry, the logging industry, and then finally the atmosphere. So first of all, I'll go over fishing, right? So, in his article, Stevens focuses on commercial fishing. That means there's no property rights. You can't really stop anyone from fishing in the open ocean, and no one has the total control of fish stocks of all the open ocean. So that results in everyone wanting to catch as much as possible, knowing that the fish they do not catch will most likely be taken by another boat, right? So everyone benefits from overfishing because they get a larger catch share, but no one pays the full cost of a harmed fishing industry, right? These problems um, will be divided by everyone, and a lot of them will fall to their successors, right, in, in the future. And uh, Stevens outlines this typical cycle of a fishery, right? So first, there's a newly discovered resource, in this case, fish. Then there's larger harvests and profits. And then, um, more fisheries enter the business, then the boats work even harder and that causes the harvest to actually decline. And then eat that, that, um, causes the fisheries to work even, even harder, right? But the harvest still declines. So the fishery essentially, um, collapses, right? And what's really important to note is that the fishers don't get exhausted. And right now, um this presents an essential problem, right? This is the problem of the commons or the tragedy of the commons within fishing. So how do we combat it, right? And according to Stevens, the easiest and most obvious solution, of course, is to place property rights, right? To limit access. But that's that doesn't really apply or work for the ocean, right? You can't limit access to all the oceans in the entire world, right? So how about limiting annual catches with restrictions on allowed technologies, right? So you can restrict allowed technologies area, uh, you can close areas, and you can limit the fishing seasons. And um, the problem with this is it essentially raises the marginal cost of fishing, right? So each constraint slash restriction forces the fishermen to re-optimize and use more expensive methods. So this actually... um, even though it might reduce harvest, it also lowers the benefits for the fisheries because the costs go up as resources are wasted. So it moves the fisheries further, right? It, let me re-emphas- uh, let me reemphasize. it moves the fisheries further from social efficiency. Another idea is a tax on fish harvest. So this is really similar to conventional regulations in that the taxes raise marginal costs, right? However, this approach transfers the rents or tax money from private to the public sector, sector, right, rather than uh, destroying them through higher resources costs. And so it doesn't really move the fisheries um, further from social efficiency. So rather than just wasting this money, the tax money is actually going to the government. But there's a really big problem. Everyone hates taxes, right? The fishermen, everyone, they would just, uh, they dislike taxes. So it's not um, the most optimal approach. And um, what the most optimal approach Stevens offers is um, the system of individual transferable quotas or ITQs. So that's where the government, since uh, sets the overall annual allowable catch, right, which is the which is actually at the efficient catch quantity, and it um, allocates this catch to the fishermen in the form of quotas. And um, this essentially allows holders to catch a, a specified quantity of fish each year. And um, fishermen or fisheries are allowed to buy and sell these quotas. So um, Basically, each individual fishery slash fisherman owns a fraction of the total resources with their quotas, and if they want to fish more, they just have to buy more quotas from other fishers. And what this does is, what like IDQs does, is it gives fishers a long-term stake in property rights in the fisheries, which reduces competition among fishers and eliminates the race to fish idea. And this works, right? So according to Stevens, the ITQ system has been uh, successfully implemented in 150 fisheries of 170 species in 17 countries, and this has eliminated overfishing. Uh, sorry, excuse me. This has eliminated overfishing. It um, restored fish stocks to sustainable levels, and it's increasing profits. And ITQs also improve the safety by reducing fishermen's incentive to go out during dangerous weather conditions because um, the governments don't have to limit fishing season durations, so the fishermen will not be rushed um, in their fishing. And when we look at some statistics from the U.S. National Research Council uh, in 1999, um, after an ITQ system was established in 1995, safety problems were diminished Bycatch was reduced by 80%, ghost fishing losses fell by 77%, and, fishing quantity inc- uh, and, sorry, and fish quantity increased. The number of fishing vessels decreased by 10%, while the harvest value increased by 34% from 1994 to 1999. So if the ITQ system works so well, then why isn't it applied to more, if not all, fisheries? Well, first of all, it's not perfect. This ITQ system is far from perfect. Um, bycatch increases through um, this ITQ system because there's something called high grading, where the fishermen throw away everything but the best fish. Also, there's additional costs to enforce these ITQs, which are often funded by taxpayers who have um, no stake in fishing. In addition, small-scale fishers are outcompeted by more industrial fishers. But these negatives can be addressed. Bycatch can be reduced by um, bycatch quotas, special gear selectivity, and area closures or incentive programs. Instead of taxing those who do not fish, the government could tax quota owners, since they are the ones using the sea, a shared resource, and they're the ones making money. Finally, certain rules and stipulations can stop out-competition by large company fisheries. And another big issue is that ITQs do not assign full property rights with full exclusivity, complete security, permanence, and unrestrained transferability because of their inherent... Oh, because of the fishing um, industries or like the ocean's inherent common property and ecosystem nature. And... um, the. The short-term benefits of high-grading, discarding, quota busting, and misreporting in illegal fishing are ecologically harmful, but less costly to the individual fisher because of the long-term costs will be shared by all participants. So um, this requires monitoring and enforcement, which will create additional costs, which undermine efficiency. But regardless of um, these negatives, ITQs is... Um, the most optimal and the most efficient system to manage um, the common resource, the common good of fisheries, right? Because it assigns a property, right? Which um, eliminates all this out-competition. It it doesn't move it further from social efficiency, and it um, reduces dangers associated with fishing. And um, so that's what the ITQ system is for fishing, so yeah. what I decided to look for is if there was anything similar to individual transferable uh, quotas in other um, common good, common resources, right? So I focus specifically on the logging industry and um, the atmosphere. So first of all, for logging, there are two main problems, right? There's um, rampant commercial logging, which leads to rainforest degradation. And there's all these destructive techniques like um, felling, um, logging techniques, liberal harvesting limits, uh, rapid rotations, and all these disrupt um, natural forest structure, carbon stores, and timber yields. Now, what I focused on is... Um, I compared two types of logging, right? There's conventional logging and reduced impact logging. What conventional logging is, is um, logging without any um, previous planning. It's unplanned logging, right? So before logging, there's no planning set forth to reduce the impact it will have on the environment, right? There's nothing um, that will look at how to avoid damaging Um, the earth, how to avoid damaging the habitats of other animals, how to avoid blocking up streams, there's nothing like that, right? It's just conventional, there's no planning involved beforehand. Now, reduced impact logging is different, right? The goal is to minimize the environmental impacts on forest stands and soils. And this involves a variety of measures, right? There's pre-felling inventories or the comprehensive harvesting plan. Uh, plan. There's um, vine cutting. There's the usage of crews trained in directional felling to, um, I guess, direct the direction of the felling. There's limits to the number and size of skid trails, logging roads, and stumping grounds. There's restrictions on the number, size, and types of trees that can be felled. Um, there's post felling closure operations to remove blockages and streams. And in the case of Borneo, um, 41% of non-harvest trees were crushed by falling lumber and tractors under conventional logging regimes. Remember, this is logging without any previous planning. However, under reduced impact logging, the residual damage was reduced to 17%, right? So with all this planning, beforehand, there was a 24% reduction in residual damage. And um, so reduced impact logging is also a prerequisite for a timber certification under the Forest Ste- uh, Stewardship Council. And it is noted that it can also increase future harvest volumes by 25 to 75%, right? So it can um, increase the amount of, I guess, wood gained from harvests because it avoids unnecessary stand damage and um, it uh, it um, avoids unnecessary stand damage and it enhances regeneration and growth. And um, it's estimated that the full implementation of um, the reduced impact logging C incentive programs would reduce logging emissions by 44%, which is um, 366 t-grams of carbon dioxide uh, per year. Now, most of the reduced impact logging systems implemented in tropical forests are based on uh, minimum cutting di- uh, diameter limits, right? So that's saying that um, it sets rules and limits that you cannot cut a tree that does not satisfy the minimum diameter limits. Now, what this does is it ignores the ecological complexity of tropical forests and the ecosystems. And um, in general, logging causes small decreases in gross primary production, leaf production, and latent heat flux. Right. And this results in canopy loss, increases in heterotrophic respiration, tree mortality, and wood production. And um, disturbances in conventional logging blocks were generally twice as severe on an area or gap um, fraction basis than in reduced impact logging blocks. Right, And then um, in a study in uh, Suriname, It was found that um, reduced impact logging resulted in a canopy loss of 6.5 to 7.4 percent, compared to the 11.4 to 16.5 percent canopy loss resulted from conventional logging. And similarly, a study of the eastern Amazon found that conventional logging leads to a canopy loss of 21.8 percent versus. Um, the canopy loss of 10% uh, for reduced impact logging. So what can be concluded from this is that reduced impact logging is just much more ecologically efficient, um, it's a lot less um, environmentally harmful, and um, it just better prepares us for the future. However, I guess it um, what this does not answer is my original question of if there was a similar system of ITQs, Individual Transferable Funds, for the logging industry, and unfortunately, I was unable to find a similar method, and that might be because, um, I guess, the logging industries are often nationalized, right? So. Um, Logging, unlike fishing, you're not competing against other countries generally, at least in the United States. Most of the logging um, United States producers consume um, is produced in the United States. It's logged in the United States. So there's um, and there's a form there. There's a system of regulations, environmental regulations and um, protocols that um at least have been somewhat successful in the United States. Now that cannot be said for the Amazon or other rainforests, but in at least in the United States, the, the system of laws have been for, at the moment successful in um, protecting the environment and I guess um, maintaining the natural structure and cycles of the forest. And um, so, Then if we can't find a similar uh, method in um, the logging industry. Now let's take a look towards the atmosphere. And the atmosphere, what does it do? Why is it important? And why should we care if there is a similar system to regulate it, such as ITQs for the fishing industry? Well, the atmosphere has been long recognized as a vital resource to humanity, Uh, enveloping the surface of the earth, this blanket of gases protects life from harmful solar radiation, it allows humans to perform cellular respiration, and it maintains the earth's climate. And despite this um, crucial role in sustaining life, the usage and exploitation of the atmosphere generally carries no price. What I mean is that governments and individuals continually exploit the atmosphere by polluting it with greenhouse gases without regard for negative consequences, and uh, many uh, uh, view the atmosphere as limitless and inexhaustible, but it is certainly capable of being exhausted, perhaps just not in the traditional sense. Human activities such as deforestation and heavy industries pollute the atmosphere by emitting greenhouse gases that trap the Earth's heat and prevent it from escaping into space. Um, The general scientific community predicts that as a result of these greenhouse gases, the earth will experience an increase in in average surface temperatures, leading to additional evaporation and precipitation along the melting of glaciers, which will contribute to a rise in sea level. And although some regions will be impacted more than others, the long-term costs of carbon emissions will be shared by all. So what I'm going to examine is first how the atmosphere is similar to um, the logging industry and the fishing industry as a tragedy of the commons, the current state of the atmosphere, um, the international responses, and then I'm going to take a quick look at the Green New Deal, which is um, some recent legislation looking to address these issues. First of all, let's look at how the atmosphere is another example of the tragedy of the commons. So um, let's, let me remind you what a common good is. So in economics, common goods, as I um, stated before, are characterized as being both rival and um, non-excludable, right? And this was first termed by um, Garrett Hardin in his tragedy of the commons. And what I didn't mention before is that it was first introduced by William uh, Foster Lloyd um, in his two lectures on the checks to population back in 1833, so a century before um, Garrett Hardin, right? And um, what Lloyd talked about is actually grazing lands, right? He was like, um, unregulated grazing will eventually result in the death of grasses in the area, meaning animals will no longer be able to graze. and what he meant, or like, he explained this do, um, through the incompatibility between open access and scarcity, right? Open a- if, if a good, such as the grazing land, is um, openly accessible to all, but it is scarce, meaning that um, there's not unlimited uh, amounts of it, and it can be used up, then eventually it will be used up, and hence there will be a tragedy of the commons, right? And for grazing, it is incentivized for each individual to consume, or in that case, graze, more because the additional benefits coming from consumption will vastly outweigh the negative effects that, um, that are shared by all. Right, and so how, how does this apply to the atmosphere? Well, if you think about it, the atmosphere is extremely similar to these grazing lands, right? It's um, openly accessible. What I mean by that is um, polluters can always pollute, right? It's not, there's no private property. The um, atmosphere is shared by all. Every um, human being, every nation um, consumes it in a way that it uses it either as a sink for pollution or it um, uses it to aid them in cellular respiration or all those I guess, benefits coming from the atmosphere I stated above, up uh, before, sorry. And, um, what's so, what, what's so, I guess it, um, it functions as a, um, global common, meaning that unlike, like, other common goods, it's shared by all nations, but owned by none. So, um, every human on the earth utilizes it, like, regardless of where they're from, Um, what race, what gender they are, how old they are, every human um, uses it, right? And um, similarly, the consequences of a polluted atmosphere will be shared by all. And so how can the atmosphere, right, with its, um, how can something like that be scarce, right? What I mean by scarce is not, not in a sense that it can be used up, but in a sense that it can be polluted to the point where it can't function normally, right? Um, but by, by emitting all these greenhouse gases, um, these, um, all these greenhouse gases prevent the atmosphere from functioning like it would normally be capable of do, doing so, and in that sense it is exhausting the atmosphere of its capability to uh, maintain the Earth's climate and prevent um, I guess, uh, let the heat um, go out into space. And um, sp- especially due to the atmosphere's fluid nature, it's impossible to limit um, sus- uh, substantial amounts of polluted materials within the polluting nation. So if one nation or individual pollutes, the negative effects will be shared by all. And so other than Europe and some other regions, um, that have started to price carbon emissions. The atmosphere is accessible and utilized by everyone freely, right? So polluters, ranging from individuals to government, are able to emit these greenhouse gases and clog up the atmosphere without consequences. And i um, currently the state of the atmosphere. Since 1901, the Earth's average surface temperature has been rising 0.7 to 0.9 degrees Celsius, which is around 1.3 to 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit um, per century, right? However, since 1975, this rate has nearly doubled to 1.5 1.5 uh, to 1.8 8 degrees Celsius, which is 2.7 to 3.2 degrees Fahrenheit uh, per century. And such a rise in global surface temperatures has overreaching consequences in all realms concerning human life so even though some regions might welcome this increase in global surface temperatures due to um, they might get longer growing seasons or fewer deaths from cold exposure it is anticipated um, that the negative impacts of climate change will vastly outweigh such benefits global warming greatly affects global economics right uh, most F- uh, estimates predict that unrestrained climate change will result in a 1-3% to loss of world GDP by the middle of the 21st century, and furthermore, in the United States alone, estimates demonstrate that a 3 degree rise in average surface temperatures would lead to a 2% loss of U.S. Uh, GDP, while a 6% uh, rise corresponds to a 6% loss in, a loss in U.S. GDP. And um, let's. What about international responses to these, um, I guess, pressing concerns in um, climate change? Well, the international community has definitely long sought to reduce or at least limit atmospheric pollution, but um, the success of such, I guess, international treaties have not been completely successful. So one of the main focuses, I guess, of international treaties or agreements is greenhouse gas emission uh, reduction. And um, the Coyote Protocol, which was signed in 1997 and ratified in 2005. It represents the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Changes and each of the 192 member parties' commitment to the reduction of atmospheric greenhouse gas emissions. And um, from 2008 to 2012, it sought to reduce the emissions of six key greenhouse gases by 5.2% in comparison to the 1990 levels. For each um, and each separate um, signing country had their own separate emission targets, right? However, Al, um, Almer and Winkler, in their study, found that there was little empirical evidence for a significant reduction in emissions for countries with these binding greenhouse gas targets when compared to emissions in the absence of such targets. And then in 2008, the European Parliament adopted the EU climate and, um, package, right? And it set three key targets to be met by 2020. Uh, 20% cut in greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels, um, 20% of EU energy from renewables, and a 20, 20% improvement in energy efficiency. As of 2012, um, it was found that the total greenhouse gas emissions were 18% below 1990 levels in the EU28, nearly reaching the 20% goal 8 years ahead of schedule, which is extremely good news. However, without additional measures, these uh, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions will eventually slow down. The European Environmental Agency predicted that with existing measures, there will be a reduction of 21% by 2020, which is um, over the 20% goal set for 2020. However, um, however, from 2013 to 2020, uh, to 2020, there will be only an average yearly reduction of 0.25%, compared to the 0.82% each year from 1990 to 2012 even though this plan was only implemented in 2009. The limited success, or in the Kyoto Protocol's case, little to no success of these international efforts demonstrate that additional work is needed. And um, really recently, the Paris Climate Accords, which were adopted by 196 state parties in 2015 and made effective in 2016, sought to address these pressing concerns on a global scale. Under this disagreement, each member country agrees to a NDC, which is a nationally determined contribution pledge um, of greenhouse gas targets they plan to achieve. The Paris Climate Accords long term goal is to limit the increase in global average temperatures to well below two degrees Celsius, with the goal at 1.5 degrees Celsius. And um, researchers estimate that the atmosphere concentrations must be stabilized at 450 ppm, which would only be achieved by cutting global emissions 60 to 80 percent below 2005 levels to have a 0.5 probability, so 50 percent probability, of limiting global warming to below two, per, uh, 2 degrees Celsius. Although these NDCs are predicted to economically hurt the member countries, there will be little effect on global oil and gas demand. What I'm saying is that countries will have to make the necessary sacrifices economically in order to attain the two-degree Celsius goal set by the Paris Climate Accords. And finally, what about the Green New Deal? So, on February 7th of 2019, Senator Edward Markley and Representative Alexandria Oskio-Cortez released their Green New Deal resolution, and um, it referenced a special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, saying that, um, saying that among many things. The United States must um, have net zero greenhouse gas emissions. It must meet 100% of the power demands in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero emission energy sources. And um, there must be an overhauling of the transportation system to eliminate pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector. And um, the 2019... Greenhouse, uh, green New Deal is really reminiscent of FDR's um, New Deal reforms during the Great Depression in the 1920s and 30s, and um, the concept of this Green New Deal isn't really new either. The name originated in 2006 with the Global Greens Green New Deal Task Force, calling for 100% clean reno- renewable energy by 2030. Then, in a New York Times column, Thomas Friedman called for green Green Globalism, and that was in 2007. And finally, um, it also has been included in platforms of many political parties in both the United States and Europe. Um, It was the centerpiece of Jill Stein's Green Party platform in the 2016 presidential election, and it was also central in the European Green Party's platform. So, it calls for, let me remind you, Well, some of the key aspects of it is net zero greenhouse gas emissions and total decarbonization, um, a green transport system, and um, a green housing system, right? And as of right now, they set a 10-year goal to this. And the 10-year goal is not a deadline. It's only to get as much done as possible within the 10-year goal. And um, it has been really criticized for being really um, vague and not clear. But um, the goal of this resolution is not to be put into law, necessarily. It's just to get some ideas down and um, etc. So, with that, that will be all for today's episode of the Economic Ponderings. Thank you for joining me, and I hope to see you again soon for episode 2. Adios, amigos.